0: there, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This particular message is very unique in the Eric Ludy audio collection. It was delivered in Santa Barbara, California in October 2009 at a benefit gala for the cause of the unborn. Eric had a different message prepared to give that night, but on his drive from the airport to the venue in Santa Barbara, he was deeply burdened with this particular message known as depraved indifference. When you listen to it. I think you will understand why it has proven an impetus to so many Christians to rise up and do something for the vulnerable and the least among us, not just with human compassion, with the very compassion of our Father God. Please, if you have any questions, contact us at www.ellersley.com and enjoy the message.
1: This ministry is so important my mom was counseled to abort me. The message that I have to share is in percolation within my heart. There's, there's messages that end up in books, and those are messages that have worked their way through the system. If any of you have worked on a book project, you know you have to have a message. Some, some people just want to write a book, but you have to have a message. And the message I'm going to share with you tonight isn't ready for a book yet because it's in process and it's deep. It's deeper than other messages. And there's pain with it. There's, there's a gripping reality. It's a gut check. And So, in the formation of this, I don't know how it's going to come out, but you're going to hear Eric Ludy turned inside out. This is what I feel deeply about. I don't typically speak on the issue of unborn life, but I speak on life. And Betsy knows how similar our heartbeats are, and I care deeply about this theme. (sighs) So I'm going to attempt to walk you through this message. Uh, it might be a little uncomfortable at times. I, I'm somewhat known for causing people to squirm in their seats. Uh, and I, believe me, I'm squirming in mine the entire time. I'm just not seated. Uh, but I love truth. And truth, to me, is an elixir. Some people try and avoid conviction. I call it sweet Because I know that I'm where God wants me when I'm feeling, even if it's uncomfortable, that pain of spirit to say, you know what, God? If you're headed over a cliff, wouldn't it be nice to have God blow upon that fog bank that you can't see? Because if you keep walking, there's death just up ahead. And conviction is God blowing away the fog bank and you standing naked before the reality of what truth is in your life, and that is that you are headed in the wrong way. Is that a good thing to know? I think so. But it doesn't feel very good because you have to account for the fact that you've spent years of your life going the wrong direction. And some of us, we'd almost rather go off that cliff and to our death than know that we've been headed in the wrong direction for so many years of our life. I'm one that wants God to blow away the fog. And as a result, I seem to be in the business of blowing away fog. And it causes a little discomfort, but I tell you what, there's life. There's life, but it's in this direction. And it takes a little turning, which is also the word repent, which is a very politically incorrect word these days. But that's what we need as the church today. Now, let me give you one of my expertise, one of my book messages, in other words, one that's fully developed, uh, is on the state of the modern church. Not a very positive topic always. Some of us like to just say, oh, everything's great. And you might have a great church. And so as a result, it could be great in your little locale. But I tell you what, something's not right out there. We are not seeing a clear picture of Jesus Christ in America for certain. And the church of Jesus Christ has gone silent where they need to be vocalizing. And they've, they're soft where they need to be strong. And they're strong in places they need to be soft. Something's out of whack and most of us know it but you don't quite know what to do about it. I mean, I'm just this, you know, one person out here. You know how many people feel that in the arena of life? Even in California. You know, I'm not from California, okay, so I'm jumping to some conclusions here. I may get in trouble for this. I think it's somewhat difficult to stand up on the issue of the unborn and the value of the unborn in California right now. And as a result, we as Christians have a tendency to measure our behavior on social sensibility standards. I mean, we're decent people here in Santa Barbara, and we want to showcase Christianity in a very healthy, positive way. And so as a result, what would that be? Keep your mouth shut. That's decency. That's social grace. You know, if you study social grace, you'll realize that it's, it's, if someone's in the back corner of a cocktail party with their arms folded, that is saying something. It's saying, don't bother them. Social grace leaves them be. You know that Christ's grace is different? Christ's grace violates certain social norms for truth's sake and for the glory of Jesus Christ and the value of life. And unfortunately, I have to blow on a little fog to say, we need to get uncomfortable and be risking offending this world around us to stand for what Jesus Christ would call us to stand for. Nazi Germany, cattle cars full of Jews. Many of us think about the Holocaust and we're horrified. If we see Schindler's List or we, is Anne Frank or uh, the hiding place, grief fills us. What goes through our mind? We measure ourselves and we say, what would I have done? Would I have been like Cory Ten Boom and, had the, and hid them in my house? Would I have risked my own life? And we cringe because we don't quite know the answer to that because we're not tested in that way here in comfortable America. And some of us think noble thoughts about ourselves, and we say, I would. I would do that. You see the movie Amazing Grace, and you see the slave trade, and the abominations that were taking place, and then you see this man, and you're like, Boy, would I like to be like William Wilberforce. And we measure ourselves at a certain level and we say, what would I have done? I remember leaving Amazing Grace and I was thinking, God, give me a cause. Give me a cause like that. If I lived back in that day, oh, it seems so romantic to stand for the slave trade. I don't know that it was that romantic to William Wilberforce. Just a background movie score behind you and standing up. And then finally in the end, everyone stands up and gives you an ovation The slave trade is greater today than it was in the days of William Wilberforce. And we're saying, God, give me a cause. We have a cause, but we don't want to see it. And it's when we finally acknowledge the fact that something is wrong with us, not with the world out there. If we start with this little group here, and we say, God, you need to fix this. Cattle cars full of Jews going along the train tracks there's a church, a Christian church, and they're in session. and they can see the lights on, they can hear the sound coming out because they're singing. And the Jews think if anyone would respond to our plight, who would it be? It'd be the Christians. So they scream at the top of their lungs, Help us, Help us!" And the Christians inside that church turn up the volume of the pipe organ and drown out the noise. That is haunting to me because there's part of me that feels at times my hand reaching for the volume of the pipe organ. There's something that I suffer from, and it's not just me, it's all of us. We suffer with it from the womb, and it's known, legally speaking, as depraved indifference. Depraved indifference, legally speaking, if any of you are lawyers, you could definitely do some correction on some of the nuance that I'll bring out in this, but I'll try and give a basic understanding. You're sitting on the park bench, little lake in front of you, someone's drowning right in front of you, and you don't do anything. You watch them drown, and you don't feel anything. You know that you can be charged for murder, for being Showcasing depraved indifference. It's inhuman to sit there and let someone drown right in front of you. You see it even. You know it's happening, but you do nothing. It is a charge of murder. Well, what did you do? You didn't cause the person to drown. Hey, I'm innocent. This is what we plead to ourselves all the time. Hey, I'm innocent. I'm not the one aborting the baby. I'm not the doctor. I'm innocent. And you have sat on that park bench and watched it. And you did nothing. I suffer from this. We all do. It is a problem within our wiring. Now, let me give you a little story from the life of Eric Ludy, Because there's been an awakening process within Eric. And like I said, this is an uncomfortable thing within my life. Because you have to follow this. There's some dominoes that start to follow. If you actually start to take this seriously and say, well, wait a minute, what do you mean, Eric? You say I'm supposed to when the cattle cars are driving by I'm, even if everyone else turns up the pipe organ I'm supposed to run outside and say stop! Jump on the train tracks. What am I supposed to do? I know this feeling. I'm just one insignificant little guy. What am I supposed to do? I can't jump on the side of the train and say stop in the name of Jesus Christ. What am I supposed to do? Tell me. I was I've I've spent the past three years, three years ago, I'll just give you a quick little story here. I wasn't planning on saying this, but it's coming out. My wife had a miscarriage three years ago almost to the day. I'm a leader. A lot of people are watching me. Somewhat embarrassed by this, that we would have a crisis of that nature in our family. It was grievous. It was tremendously disappointing. It hurt deeply. But it's like, you know what? We have a lot of people watching us. God's good. We thank God in all circumstances. Let's move on. Well, about a month and a half, two months later, we realized you don't just move on. Leslie began to collapse, even physically, emotionally. It was an absolute shutdown. She needed to grieve. God spoke to me so specifically. I'm not one that talks about God speaking all the time, but he spoke. He made it very clear. Eric, I know you're trying to be the man in this situation, but let me teach you how the man in this situation works. The man feels the weight that God is feeling. You see, Eric, I'm grieving over this little one. I'm like, God, but he was only six, six weeks old. Eric... I'm grieving over the loss of this little one. Do you know that, Eric? No one cares about this little life if you don't. No one will care about it if you don't. And I care. Will you share my heart in this matter? I found myself sobbing. I was so grieved. Suddenly, out of nowhere, the cause of the insignificant rose once again. Because it had been present in years past. But, you know, front lines Christian ministry have a lot of battles to fight, a lot of fires to put out. You can be talking the right talk about fighting for the little people and suddenly you find that you're doing it because it's the right thing to do and you're not doing it because it's the burden of God. I didn't have the burden of God anymore. I hate to say it, but it was, that's what happened. And suddenly the burden of God came upon me for a six-week-old life. And I was weeping over this loss. God began to awaken me to the fact that, Eric, and I have so many more that I'm weeping for. I'm looking for someone who will share my heartbeat. Is there anyone? Eric, will you allow me to touch your heart in such a way that you can feel what I feel? And that you could be an advocate, a champion for the little ones. Because no one is anymore. So fast forward. uh, Leslie and I have been burdened with the cause of vulnerable children around the world. And it's a whole story in and of itself. But I was doing some study in Liberia. If you want to be disturbed, start studying vulnerable children. Start studying street children in Brazil. Start studying the slave trafficking of children. It is so overwhelming that you begin to see yourself shut down. The pipe organ volume. I mean, it's almost like out of necessity you find yourself reaching for that volume knob. Because, God, I can't handle this. And he goes, I know. But I want you to understand what I am carrying, Eric. And I will only give you what you can handle. But I just had to give you a taste. William Booth, when he talked about training his disciples, he said, the one thing that's missing from my discipleship training to the men and women that I'm sending out is that if this was going to be appropriately done... I would be able to hang them over the the pit of hell for 24 hours and let them hear the cries. Because if they could hear the cries of those that are suffering and in torment for eternity, it would move them to action and they would always remember what this is about. This is about life and it's eternal. This is no small matter. We can't offer that in our training. We... We know that there's a hell. We understand these things doctrinally. We know that there are suffering children out there. We've seen the pictures. We we can even see something up on the screen, but most of us are agreeing doctrinally. We agree in principle, but we don't feel it. Heroes are made because they are moved, not in their head, but in their heart. You have to be moved at such a level where you will shed blood. Jesus Christ was moved. For God so loved the world that he gave. And that son that was given suffered and died. For what? For the cause that is being laid before us tonight. Follow him. It wasn't head knowledge about the disaster taking place in this world. It was life abandonment unto the cause of those that are dying. Unto the eternal souls that are around us. This is serious business. So, talking with this lady that's been an orphan, she directs an orphanage in Liberia. I was so disturbed by what's happened in Liberia, I, to the point where I couldn't even talk on the phone. She came down, they, her and her husband had room for 12, I think it was, maybe it was 17, 17 orphans in their house that they had down there. At the end of the first week, they had 29 packed into it. The need was so great. These kids are literally just sitting outside, starving to death. And they don't have parents. They don't have anyone to come and comfort them. They don't have anyone to hand them food because the Christians down there are so maxed out, they have no more resources. The same thing Life Network is experiencing is the impoverishment they can only reach so far. So programs start getting cut. That's exactly what's happened in Liberia. And so she tells me about this little boy. And I have no idea why she told me this story, but it for some reason was the story she picked of a little boy, four years old, sitting on the side of the road, the Christian ministries and the orphanages are so maxed out, time-wise. I mean, they have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands upon thousands of kids that have high needs that have nothing and are starving to death just right there. In other words, you're dealing with these kids and this kid dies right in front of you. She tells me about this four-year-old boy who's sitting on the side of the road. Nothing. No one to comfort him. No one to take him in. No shelter. No food. Nothing. So in the middle of that night, I wake up. Middle of the night, I wake up. And it's like God had already deposited a question, and it was waiting to meet me when I popped awake in the middle of the night, two in the morning. And I had this picture of this little boy in Liberia in front of me, and God asked me a question. What if that was Hudson, my four-year-old? Eric, what if that was Hudson? Uh, You don't mess with a father's heart. What if that was Hudson? If my boy was on the side of a road across the world from me, suffering, totally alone, not knowing what's happening, he's not old enough to comprehend this. He's abandoned. He has no one to fight for his cause, no one to give him a voice. He doesn't even know how to articulate his circumstances. He's hungry and no one's feeding him. He's starving to death. If my son is in that situation, stick a concrete wall in front of me and I claw through it with my bare hands. This is my son we're talking about. And if I couldn't get there, I would call up every friend I have, and I would say, I have a son over in Liberia. Call yourself my friend. I need you to get on a plane, and I need you to get to him. I'll give you the coordinates. I'll do whatever it takes, but I need you to get to my son and be a father to him. God's response, Eric, that's my Hudson. That is my Hudson. And he's looking to us, and he's saying, I'm calling up everyone I know, everyone on my list that calls himself by my name, that says they're a friend of God, and I'm saying, my son is over in Liberia, are you willing to get on the soonest plane and get to him? That's the reality of the Christian life. Now, we can't handle every kid all over the world. There's 145 million orphans today. We can't rescue 48 million from being aborted. This is a, this is a call way too big for us. So I, I felt that weight, that mountain just right on top of me. But nonetheless, this is Christianity. I said I suffer from something. I suffer from depraved indifference. And so do you. Depraved indifference, we could call it this, or I could try and describe it this way. Here we are. Normal humanity. Oh, we care. It's not that that doesn't move us at some level to hear about this little child over in Liberia. We care, but we can go home tonight and sleep just fine. How is that? It's because there's an indifference to that life. And it's naturally born within us. That life isn't affecting us. It's not in our backyard. We're not related to it. It's someone else's issue. In fact, we start quoting scriptures about God being a father to the fatherless. We're like, thank you, God, that you're a father to that child. He says, uh, remember, you call yourself my body. I'm not there except through you. Your hands, Eric, those are my hands. Your feet, those are my feet. That heart, that's my heart. And if it's not beating... My heart's not beating on this earth anymore. I work through my body. I'm a father to the fatherless through my body. I rescue the weak and the vulnerable through you. And if you're not doing it, no one is. Depraved indifference is the gap between right here and God's heart. It's amazing. But if that's Hudson, my four-year-old over in Liberia, There's no depraved indifference. I have a father's heart. I have a righteous perspective on that life. But here most of us stand for everyone but our children. What God has to do is solve this difference. He has to move us to live here with these children that we're talking about in Santa Barbara. That are in women's wombs, young girls' wombs. We could say, Do we care? Of course we do. Look, we're here, aren't we? No, do we care at the level God cares? Do we carry a burden? When we go home tonight, will we grieve over the fact that those children are God's children? And He is longing for an advocate to stand up and say, I'm willing, God, to fight for what is yours. I'm willing, God, burden me. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, you know what he was there for? He was there for life. He was burdened with the weight of it all for life. And he was willing to sweat great droplets of blood. Are we? What are we willing to do? My passion is a theme that we could call honor. It's a good word. I like it. And as a man, I want to be a man of honor. I don't know too many men in here that would be like, yeah, I don't really want to be a man of honor. We want to be men of honor or women of honor. It's a good word, but if I asked you what does honor mean, it's like, well, it's just one of those noble type of words. I want to introduce you to the idea of honor because honor has a lot to do with what we're talking about. Honor is living here as a lifestyle not as a concept, not as something that we esteem and we can see in movies, William Wilberforce, and we're like, you know what? Go, William! But we ourselves can adopt the hero-rescuer mindset. You know what my son wants to do with his life? He's, you know, four and a half. He wants to rescue orphans. As a father, you know that that is very sacred to me Because he'll grow out of that very quickly if daddy doesn't cultivate it. So gulp, I don't know that I can show you the gulp that I'm actually feeling. We're headed to Haiti with my little four-and-a-half-year-old. I know how crazy that sounds. Believe me. I'm headed to Haiti in January, and we're going to help orphans. Because I have to cultivate that. I know how vulnerable we are to this depraved indifference. Something has to take place in my son's life to move him here. And so his dad is committed, even at the risk of bringing my four-and-a-half-year-old into basically a fourth-world country, to begin the process. Honor. I'm going to give you the brief definition. This is a very complex thing, and this is one of my passion points. I, I brought, I think, a sample of almost every one of my books. Most of it, I have samples. I brought four in quantity, so you'll see piles out there. One of my books, The Bravehearted Gospel, probably fits most with what I'm talking about tonight, but it's basically about sticking the manly stuff back in Christianity, giving it a backbone once again. And so if any of you like that sort of stuff, you love the Bravehearted Gospel. And uh, I teach Hudson honor. Okay? Now, they're very simplistic uh, elementary school, actually preschool lessons on honor, but most of us don't even know the basics of honor. You see, in heaven, there is a way that things are done. There is a behavior pattern. You know that there are seraphim and cherubim and angelic hosts that are around the throne of God and they behave a certain way around God. They don't burp and scratch. When you talk about modern Christianity, the best way for me to describe it, not just our culture, but modern Christianity, it's Jerry Seinfeld. It's very community-oriented. It's like, we want community. That's what this is all about. And so you get a whole bunch of burper-scratchers together... A whole bunch of people that have very little dignity, decorum, or anything, they get together and swap hilarious stories, and they love each other even in their miserable state, but they never progress anywhere. They are all self-centered. It is all about them and their little world, and they never get outside of it. Welcome to Christianity. It's fun. You laugh a lot. But there is nothing beyond that little apartment. And Christianity was intended to be so much more. Here's my description of Christianity. Jane Austen meets Lord of the Rings. The Jane Austen nobility and dignity and manliness and femininity meets the adventure of rescuing the world. We need to catch a vision for what we're here for. It's more than just getting together and thinking right thoughts and talking about things. Could you imagine If you heard about frazzled ice cream, and someone said, you know, it's the greatest stuff in the entire world, and when you taste it, oh, it transforms your existence. It is the most delectable thing that will ever touch your tongue. Even when it's going down your throat, it, like, transforms your body, and you get stronger. Then it gets into your stomach, and it just sort of, like, swirls around and gives you good feelings all over. It's extraordinary stuff. Could you imagine we all get together and we sing songs about frazzled ice cream, the virtues of frazzled ice cream. We memorize the ingredients list. We exclaim and make praises of this incredible ice cream, but none of us ever take the spoon out and taste it. Christianity isn't meant to be talked about. It's meant to be lived. And the world will only be changed when Christians take their spoon out and dig into Jesus Christ and allow him in. To transform them in every regard. This is how it works. Christianity, honor. One and the same. It's taking what has been purchased by the cross. The behavior of heaven. Nature of Jesus Christ. And transplanting it into the heart of men and women down here on earth. So that they behave not like this world. But like heaven. And so when this world sees them, they're different. There is something odd about them. They are from another realm. That's honor. What does it look like? It's noble. It's brave. It's courageous. It's selfless. It is willing to spend itself for the weak. You see, there is a caste system in heaven, but it's exactly backwards from the caste system where this world naturally creates. This world applauds and esteems the wealthy and the powerful and the privileged and the talented. That's not how God's system works. Jesus came and he proved it. He took the lowest spot and he was God. The bigger you get in the kingdom of heaven, the lower position you take. The special ones in God's kingdom are the weak ones. The ones who can't fight for themselves. The ones that can't speak for themselves. The ones that don't have someone to feed them. The ones that don't have someone to protect them. Just study scripture, you'll see it all throughout. And Jesus says, those are the prized ones. And you treat them as the royalty here on earth. And the way you treat them is ultimately the way you're treating me. What you do unto the least of these is how you're ultimately treating your God. So you do not diminish these. You treat them as the most valuable. I remember having a discussion with multiple guys on this point. There was about 10 of us in the room. And we were talking about forming a group that could go and begin to rescue child slaves. I mean, talk about getting guys excited. It's like, yeah, that sounds fun. And we were talking about these child soldiers in Uganda. And I made the statement, and I said, you know what? Most of us think, yeah, if we're going to go over there and risk our life, we better save more than one. And I said, I think we're getting this wrong. We put way too much value on our own life. We think we're so special in the kingdom of heaven. How about this? What if God saw fit to say, you know what? Just one of those child soldiers is worth ten of us. That's a paradigm shift. And we're like, hey, I'm more valuable than that. Ten for one? Yeah. Ten for one. I'm, all I'm saying is that's how valuable this life is. But we have diminished it so low that we don't even feel for it anymore. Not only does it not have value, but we don't even feel. This child is drowning right in front of us, and we are turning up the volume. That is depraved indifference, and we all suffer from it at varying levels. But there is a solution for it, Hudson. I, I was doing a—we were doing a photo shoot for one of our book covers, Wrestling Prayer—which ended up not having anything to do with this photo shoot. We ended up with a completely different photo. We brought down this sword from my closet. I was holding the sword for the photo. The photos turned out terrible, but Hudson saw a sword for the first time. A very interesting dynamic of a little boy seeing a sword. Isn't it? It's funny, you know how he's like, "Where's Dad?" This is Daddy's sword. Uh, And in in our house, Satan is known as the big meanie. And so he was sort of like, what do you do with that? He didn't say it that way, but Daddy was reading his mind. Uh, And Daddy said, uh, Daddy fights the big meanie uh, with his sword. Uh, And Hudson has never forgotten that statement. And uh, Hudson has a foam sword. You know, one of those things from Walgreens. And, you know, he brought it home and he couldn't wait to hit things with his sword. And so Harper, our little two-and-a-half-year-old girl, he'd come up to Harper and poof, hit her over the head. And so daddy's had to train Hudson in honor. You see, Hudson, a sword is a very important tool in a gentleman's artillery, okay? You need to learn how to use this sword, but you need to realize a sword is only used to protect. It is not used aggressively. Now, you are, this, is, this sword is meant for the big meaning. Okay, you need to realize that it's not used on Harper. So I, I've taught him, basically, he understands this. It's, if the big meanie comes to our door, kink, 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 hey, I want to come in and hurt someone. The strong one in our house, the strongest one in our house is daddy. And so daddy's responsibility is to fight and protect everyone weaker than himself. So I turn, my wife's behind me, I say, Leslie, take the kids into the basement. Daddy's taking care of this. That's honor. Well, how would you women feel if, or maybe even the men in here, how would you feel if a big meanie comes to the door and Leslie pushes me aside and says, uh, "Honey, you take, honey, you take the kids into the basement. I'm taking care of this." It's it's honor, but it's not true honor in the sense that she's not valuing the way God has prescribed things. I'm a man. And men have not been given that privilege of fighting and protecting anymore. I want it. I want the privilege. And so the basic construct of honor is you protect that which is weaker than yourself. You are responsible before God. You are entrusted with the privilege of doing it. And so I ask Hudson, who are you responsible for protecting with your sword? If the big man, he comes to the door. uh, Harper? I go, good. Kipling? mm Mm-hmm. Heavenly? Mm Mm-hmm. Good job. And if you stand up against the big meanie to fight, who helps you? Uh, Jesus? That's right. When you stand and fight for the causes that Jesus Christ has entrusted you to fight for, you can always know that he will fight for you. It doesn't matter how big, because Hudson knows that the big meanie oftentimes comes in the package of giants. You know, we studied David and Goliath, and, and Goliath's a big meanie. He works for the big meanie. Okay, that's how it works. And so he knows that giants are big meanies. And he also notices in the Bible, usually the men that fight for the purposes of God are small. And so there seems to be some weird thing here. And so he's realizing that oftentimes those that fight for truth are small, and those that are the big meanies are big. He hasn't quite figured out why they grow so big and why we get stunted in our growth, However, he's learning and understanding that it doesn't matter your size. And you realize that even if you're small, if you have a job to do, and you stand up with that sword drawn, and you say, it's my privilege, God. They will not get by me because you are fighting for me. That's honor. We have a job to do. I know you feel small. I feel very small. We're not big It's when we try and act big that it looks ridiculous. We are small, and God knows it. He refers to us as lambs, sheep. I don't know how many of you have ever seen a sheep or a lamb attack a wolf and take it down. In all of world history, do you think it has ever happened that a lamb attacked a lion, a bear, or a wolf and beat it? In all of history. These are the odds that you face. It is impossible to fight the battle that you have been assigned. Just accept it. Here's your secret. Here's the shepherd. Now, I'm not the shepherd. Jesus is, but just as a mental picture here. Shepherd, and here's the little lamb. Stay by the shepherd's ankle. Wherever the shepherd moves, you move with it. If you stay by the shepherd, you know those wolves come near, and you can look at them and say, hey, get out of here. And that wolf is like uncomfortable going, I can't believe that. I'm being spoken that way too by a, a, a lamb. Uh-huh. That's God's sense of humor. He allows us to participate in the great battle of taking down wolves, bears, and lions as lambs, as sheep. We have no business fighting this battle. It is so much bigger than us. I'm going to very quickly walk you through the gospel. I know you've, you've heard it. But I want to freshly rekindle the fire of what Jesus Christ has done to realize that there is a way of getting from here to here. It's not just saying, you know what? I think it's great that you know, we could talk about this theoretically and maybe we could be burdened with God's heart and theory. I'm saying that there's a way of dealing with this barrier, this gap in between, which is known as selfishness. Jesus Christ has made provision for us to get out of our comfortable Santa Barbara mentality. Because I tell you what, you have an easy life here. You have it good. And when you have it good, it is that much harder to break through this gap. Because it is so easy to turn up that volume. Why? Because you don't even need to touch the knob. The volume is at full full scale already without you touching it. It is so hard to get a group of people from Santa Barbara to this, and this is one of the most important things happening in the universe right now. And some of, the most, some of the people that are most equipped to help this internationally are not here tonight. You are here for some reason. And maybe you're small because in the whole scheme of this battle, this isn't very many people. God doesn't mind. God doesn't mind that there's only a few. In fact, he loves to take on massive armies with only a few. You know that the Philistine army was coming against uh, David's kingdom? David knew that God had promised this land, and the Philistines were after a bean patch, a bean patch known as Pasdame. And you know that all of Israel fled? They were so afraid of this incoming host of Philistines. All of them fled, it says, except for one known as David. Could you imagine this moment in history? An entire army is coming. David pulls his sword. And he's standing there. Wait, crazy? Yes. It's Christianity. In a nutshell, that's Christianity. It says in scripture that Eleazar and Shammah, two of the mighty men, stood with him. That's three against an entire armed host. And it says that Eleazar's hand grew weary. Uh-huh, I can imagine. But then he claved his hand to the sword. And it says the Lord wrought a great victory. It's the greatest understatement in the Bible. I just want God to fill in a little more detail. Okay, how did that happen? Your hand, Betsy, may be growing weary. Cleave your hand into that sword. It means to literally forge it. Forge it. Do not let go. Determine that even if you're the only one that stands, you will not let go. And the Lord will bring about a great victory. That is the way his kingdom works. We are behind bars. Guilty verdict over us. There is no hope for our life. Not only are we depraved in our indifference, but every other facet of our life is literally in the toilet. We are a mess. And for some reason, Jesus Christ gave up his life, and the penalty that we deserved, he took it upon himself. We deserve death, and he died. It's an extraordinary tale, known as the gospel. But that's just the beginning. Because Jesus Christ did that to unlock the rest of the gospel. That isn't the fullness of it. That's the beginning of it. Most of us stop there and we're like, okay, so my sins are forgiven. When I believe in Jesus, that means I can go to heaven. Well, that's a wonderful attribute of it, which is good news. But it's the beginning of the good news. Because the good news, most of us spend our life behind bars. We're still depraved in our indifference. And we accept it as if it's part of the gospel life. It's like, oh, well, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm sure I'll feel what God feels. When I get to heaven, then I'll be pure, and then I can think good thoughts and noble thoughts. Then I'll treat my wife well. Well, that's not where it stops. There is provision in the gospel. If we've ever tested the the, the door in the prison cell, most of us never do, because we're never told to. Go up to the door and try it. It's unlocked. You're not supposed to remain in prison. He didn't just take the guilty verdict. He didn't just take the penalty of our sin. He also set us free from it so that we wouldn't be under the thumb of its control, that we wouldn't be in this miserable state of showcasing the world nothing but themselves. They already know what they look like. They need to see what Jesus looks like. And so he gives us the freedom to enter into a new life. And then when we come outside of that cell, there's a chariot waiting, and there's emissaries on it, and they say the king requires your presence. He asks you to come into his kingdom, to enter into the place where he lives and to live where he lives. Did you know that you were just a rebel a few minutes ago? And the gospel actually states that it didn't just take your penalty and take that curse and take the, the suffering. But then he actually sets you free from all that was ca- causing that type of a suffering. That all that was going to cause that death in your life. And then he actually asks you to enter into his presence and to live where he lives. But it gets better than that. He doesn't just ask you to come where he lives. But then he says, and I want to adopt you as my own. Not just to live where he lives, in the city where he lives, which is a beautiful place. It's a place of protection where he rules And you're secure when you're there. But then he asks you to enter into an intimate connectivity with him. That is mind-boggling. We have diminished the gospel so much that we oftentimes lose the grandeur and the epic nature. This is better than Lord of the Rings. This is so far beyond anything we could ever comprehend or imagine. Because he doesn't just ask us into his presence. This is when it gets good. That's just the beginning of the gospel. Wait till you hear this piece. He says, I've brought you into this place. I've called you my own. I've given you my name because I have a job for you to do. I have a job for you and that is that you would go into this world and you would showcase me. You would share me. You would give me the same way you found me that you would give me. Freely, you've received. Now give it. Give it. Jesus sets us free from the concentration camp. He brings us into boot camp to send us back into concentration camp so that we can rescue those that are suffering. He sends us into the darkest pits of hell on this earth because we are untouchables. We are walking in stride with the shepherd and the enemy can have not our souls. We can walk into the darkest places and be a rescuer the same way Jesus was. That is amazing because he doesn't just send us out and say, well, God be with you. Be warm and well fed in your journeys. He says, I'm going with you. Will you let me have this body of yours? Let me make these hands my hands. Let me make these feet my feet. Let me make this heart beat my feelings, the very things that I'm feeling. Let me make this mind think my thoughts. Let me have you, and I will change the world in and through you. There is a solution for our disease, which is known as sin, and it's Jesus Christ. There's a solution for these dying children. There's a solution for the unborn, and it's Jesus Christ. Might sound overly simplistic, but that's it. That is the solution. Because Jesus Christ will change a man like Eric Ludi into a man that feels what Jesus Christ is feeling. And he cannot stay in suburbia USA anymore and do nothing. You may not be called to Liberia. You may not be called to Haiti. But you are here. And look what you're hearing about. You could say, well, what can I do? I feel so small. I feel so impotent. I don't know what to do. The challenge is too big. You have this ministry sitting right in front of you. Rise up and declare that it is time to conquer. What if all of us rallied around to the point of shedding blood around what's happening here? What if we did? What if we took it seriously? What if you all said William Wilberforce was nothing compared to what's going to happen here? We're going to start here and it's going to be the epicenter of an earthquake, the right sort of earthquake in California. We will see it actually measure on the Richter scale in this country. We will see a difference and it will begin here. Why not? It has to begin somewhere. If it doesn't, we're dead in this country. This country is hanging by a thread. I know many of you feel it. What does it take to wake up? Because if we think it's going to solve itself and we throw out our general prayers, God bless this nation. Don't let it go to the dogs. It's already to the dogs. The church is dying. The one emissary for Jesus Christ in this country is silent. We need someone to stand up. You already know what I'm doing. You already know that I'm barking at the top of my lungs. You already know that there's a lady who has stood up in front of you tonight and said, she's in. Who's in? Who's willing to put their life, not just their money, not just their time even, not just their theories and their doctrinal agreement and assent, but their lives. Say, what do do I need to do, God? What do I need to do? Think big. Don't think Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld Christianity will not change the world. Showcase what heaven looks like. And take this battle to the enemy's teeth. Let's go after it. For our king and his glory, we will rescue these little ones. Holy Father, you must do this in us. Please, Lord Jesus, rescue us from depraved indifference. Lord Jesus, may we feel. Please, Lord Jesus, let us feel. May we not die cold-hearted, Please, Lord Jesus, may these children become our children. May we feel at the level that we feel about our own. Lord Jesus, do whatever is necessary to reach our lives and to reach the rest of the church today. Please, Lord Jesus, do not leave us where we're at. We must have you. We must have all you have offered us through the cross.
0: Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.